church. How are you? And really, Happy New Year. I, um, I was not planning on opening today with this story, but I was telling the, uh, the 9 a.m., um, it just kind of popped into my head when I was pulling onto the property, and uh, you'll see where I'm going with it. So I, I think it was 2017, <clears throat> this church sent me to Israel um, I think it was for Pastor's Appreciation Month. I wasn't there for a month, but that's why they sent me. I think it was a 12-day trip. And uh, so many things, you know, that I experienced over there that I never thought I'd get to to see or experience. It was really neat. Uh, Probably the most memorable for me, though, was that I got to baptize people in the Jordan River. And uh, there was a number of people from my group that wanted to get baptized. But, um, you know, people go, there's pretty, from what I understand, there's pretty much always tourists at the Jordan River and so when we started baptizing people in our party, uh, a whole bunch of people lined up that I never met before and I knew I'd probably never see again, and I got to baptize them too. It was a really neat experience. But if you've never, if your only picture of the Jordan River has been just what you've read in the Bible, you probably have overestimated it. Uh, it, it really is comparable to the Severn Run after a good rain, at least the part where we were. Our jokes aside, it was muddy. You, obviously, you could stand in it because we were baptizing people, and it was only about 30 foot across, um, and it was freezing cold when I was in it. But the, the thing that stood out to me the most then and stands out to me now, even as I look back on it, is, is just the setting that it took place in. <clears throat> and probably one of the biggest takeaways I had from Israel was just that really war is a way of life. Uh, I mean, the, the tension that they deal with and, and handle and, and manage every single day. Like when we were over there, rockets were hitting the ground and there were riots and people killed and it wasn't even like you didn't bat an eye. You know, you had to kind of dig around to even hear about some of that stuff. But when I was baptizing people in the Jordan River, I did so uh, on, on one side, uh, the side that, that I entered in from, you had Israeli soldiers uh, with, you know, fully automatic rifles, finger on the trigger, ready to go. And about 35 foot across on the other side, uh, you had Jordanian soldiers, same thing. And I remember just feeling the tension between them, like, like both sides were ready to just do this thing because that's kind of all they, they'd ever known. And I zoomed out from that, and I thought that was probably, probably the best picture of, of Christianity and what Jesus was really getting across when he said, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. That was probably the best picture of it that I'd ever seen because what I was a part of that day and what I got to see was the power of God in the midst of a world that was so obviously broken by sin. Uh, I tell that story because, um, you know, this isn't the note that I don't think anybody wanted to start 2022 off on. You know, here we are again and it's, and it's Omicron and it's masks and, and it's, you know, whatever. I think the last two years maybe for a lot of us have been... Um, a reminder, maybe a, a clearer reminder than we've ever had before that the world just isn't right. It's not the way that God made it, and thank God he's not done with it. He's going to fix it. But my prayer for my life in the midst of that, instead of being you know, discouraged by that and beat down by that and frustrated with that, which is easy to do, is that my life would be a display of, the God, of God's power in the midst of that. That's my prayer for my life, and it's my prayer for us as a church, that we would be a community of individuals who are walking, talking displays of the power of God in the midst of a world that really needs them. So here today on the, on the front end of, uh, of t- 2022, um, I'd like to just pray that over us if I can. Can I do that in church? Am I allowed to pray in church? Let's do it. Father God, uh, the story of, of Christmas, of the incarnation that we talked about last week, 
is such a hopeful thing because it's a reminder that you are not interested in a long-distance relationship with us. You came all the way down here to be available to us, and you've entered into this broken world, and Jesus Christ has begun his saving work, and by the time he's finished, it's going to be fixed. It's going to be brought back to what it was always supposed to be. Sin's going to be gone. Death's going to be gone. Sorrow and sickness and all of it is going to be gone. And for people who will put their trust in you, it's going to be what it was always supposed to be, what our hearts have always longed for. And here we are in the midst of something that I don't think anybody wants to be in the midst of, God. But I'm asking for, for, for myself and for all of us, for our marriages, for our families, for our friendships, for our careers, for us as a community, that our lives would display your power in the midst of a world that is still so war-torn and ravaged and broken by sin that by the end of 2022, we'd be able to look back and say, only God could do what you did through us in this year. Let it begin today. Let it be a testimony that we look back on that builds our faith 365 days from now. In the name of the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. So welcome. Uh, we're in week five of our series called Belief in the Age of Skepticism. The goal of this series is, is singular. Um, I want to communicate the truth of Christianity in a way that builds your faith. And um, I'm going to make a bold statement. You know, I wouldn't say this if I really didn't believe it to be true, know it to be true, actually. But this week's teaching is the most important teaching of this series. Because today we are focusing singularly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul the Apostle said in the New Testament that if we are wrong about this, it's not like Christianity still has a lot of wisdom and a lot of good things to say, and hey, it gives people something to hold on to, uh, so no harm, no foul. Paul himself actually said, I think this is so amazing, that if we're wrong about this, then we of all people are most to be pitied. That means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the T on which all of Christianity rests. And so we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. I'm in Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 39. It's a sermon that Paul delivered. He said, Brothers, sons of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. For the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they did not recognize Jesus or the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled their words by condemning Jesus. Though they found no grounds for the death penalty, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had fulfilled all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Since he raised Jesus from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. For David, after serving his own generation in God's plan, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. This is God's word. 
What I just read to you is part of of, uh, the first ever recorded sermon of Paul, and it's a really interesting sermon because it gives us insight into how the resurrection was preached and understood by the first followers of Jesus. And what's clear is that the resurrection was understood in at least two ways. It was understood first and foremost as a cold, hard, historical fact, and secondly, it was understood as a fulfillment of a promise that God had made. Um, And so the point is, if we want to be transformed uh, by the doctrine of the resurrection, the way that these first followers of Jesus were so obviously transformed by the doctrine of the resurrection, we have to understand it in the way that they understood it. And so today, I just have two big ideas for you. We're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, both as a historical fact and then secondly, as a fulfillment. And with that, we're going to get to our first idea of our teaching this morning. Number one is that the resurrection should be understood as a fact. In verses 30 and 31, Paul said, But God raised Jesus from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul's saying two things there. First off, he's saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. Secondly, he's saying that Jesus, in being raised from the dead, was seen by many eyewitnesses. He actually says here, who are now his witnesses to the people. That means that when Paul delivered this sermon, um, he did so so soon after the resurrection that the eyewitnesses to the resurrection were still alive and could have very easily been found, approached, and questioned about what Paul is saying here, which is a pretty amazing thing to consider. But the point that I want to draw out of this is that The resurrection, Paul did not preach the resurrection and the early church Christians did not understand the resurrection as just a wonderful, inspiring metaphor. Like Jesus was, you know, metaphorically raised to life in our hearts and will be raised to new levels of love and kindness toward our neighbor if we, whatever that even means. It was preached as a cold, hard, historical fact backed up by the eyewitness testimony of hundreds and even thousands of men and women who were dying rather than denying what they had seen. Maybe you've, you've come to experience this in your own life. I know I certainly have. The thing about facts is they can be really irritating because you can't negotiate with a fact. You have to deal with a fact or that fact is going to deal with you. And every once in a while, this has happened to me, maybe this has happened to you, you can come across a fact that causes you as much as you don't even want to, to have to painfully recalibrate your entire life. And and I say that because for Paul, that's what the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ did. I I think it's appropriate to say, and you'll hear soon why I believe this, that no one would have hated the fact of the resurrection more than Paul. Nobody would have found the fact of, of the resurrection more irritating than Paul. And no one would have not wanted the resurrection to be true more than Paul. Because as you're probably aware, prior to becoming a Christian, Paul hated Christianity. Right? We, we live in a culture that really holds in high regard um, tolerance. And so you'll see a lot of people that, that move through life with kind of a vague spirituality and a mindset that says, hey, maybe nobody has the full truth and everybody just has a, a sliver, like a piece of the old spiritual pie and we can all learn from one another if we just kind of accept that we don't have the market cornered on reality. Just understand, Paul didn't view Christianity that way. Uh, Paul saw Christianity as a threat to his identity, and he saw it rightly so as a threat to his identity, to everything that he believed about how we were supposed to relate to God, and really everything about how he was orienting his life. He knew that if Christianity was right, he was wrong, and vice versa, so he hated it. 
Because Christians taught that there was, and Christianity in general, not just Christians, but Christianity taught then and teaches now, there's no need for a temple. There's no need for a sacrificial system. There's no need for a high priest because Jesus Christ took care of all of that with his life, death, and resurrection. Obviously, as a Pharisee, uh, Paul would have found that incredibly offensive because, like I said, Paul had the wherewithal to know, well, either they're right and I'm wrong or vice versa, but there's no room for tolerance here. But when, when Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, suddenly it didn't really matter how offensive he found the fact of the resurrection or all of the other teachings of Christianity, he just had to accept it. That's really the, the only way to explain Paul's conversion to Christianity. And really, it's the only way to explain the rise of Christianity with first century Jews like Paul. All right, I kind of touched on this a little bit um, on Christmas Eve, but historians have pointed out that it really is, uh, it's, a, it's, a histound- it's astounding, it's astounding, everyone, <laughs> uh, that Christianity took root like it did with first century Jews, because everything about their worldview uh, set them up to be biased against believing in something as unbelievable as Christianity. Christianity teaches that a Jewish carpenter was God, and so he died and came back to life, and if you believe in him, you will too. Uh, That doesn't sound a whole lot more believable to you and I than it did to first century Jews, because, as historians have pointed out, Jews were the last people to believe, first off, that a human being could be God. They were vehemently against that idea. That's why in the midnight trial, hours before the crucifixion, when they got Jesus to finally say, yes, I am the Son of God, that's when the trial was over, and they said, all right, we got enough grounds to murder this guy, let's go ahead and do that. That was blasphemous to first century Jewish people. But not only that, they they were set up to not believe in the resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. Some Jews believed at an end-of-history event when, you know, the the just, the righteous, would be resurrected. Not even all Jews believed in that. Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. But while some Jews did believe that there would be an end-of-history resurrection, what absolutely no one believed is that one person could get their resurrected body in the middle of history and just start walking around the world, although it was still stained by sin. Nobody believed that. So here's just something to consider. Our modern worldview, uh, which is skeptical about miracles is obviously different than the first century Jewish person's worldview, which was willing to accept miracles. But here's something that we have in common that maybe you haven't considered before. We are, are skeptical about the resurrection because of our worldview, just like first century Jewish people would have been skeptical about the resurrection because of their worldview. So here's the question. When you look at the meteoric rise of Christianity among first century Jews like Paul in the Roman Empire, the question you should be asking yourself is, okay, what kind of evidence would I need to do away with all of my doubts and get me to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You would need something more than some person saying, God revealed it to me and you got to take my word for it. The question is, what kind of evidence would you need to overcome all of your biases against believing in a resurrection and to actually dedicate your whole life to it? And whatever your answer is to that question, they must have gotten evidence at least that strong. Because here Paul, the one delivering this message, was just as skeptical as you or I would be, but when he saw that Jesus was resurrected with his own two eyes, when that flattened him on the road to Damascus, he had to accept it. And as a result, even though he found a whole lot of the teachings of Christianity offensive and challenging and deeply cutting across the grain of everything that he'd been raised to believe, he had to accept all of that as well. 
And so let me finish off this first idea simply by saying this. A lot of people in our culture will say, you know, I could never become a Christian because, I, because of one particular teaching of Christianity that they find offensive. You know, I don't like what Christianity has to say about money, what it says about, you know, a sexual ethic or, or marriage or forgiving your enemies or whatever it is. A lot of people will say, I can't become a Christian. You know, I dismiss that full stop because I just can't get over how offensive this teaching is. If, if that's where you're coming from, even if that's not where you're coming from, maybe you know somebody like that, to that mindset, I, I just say, let me, let me offer you Paul. I think it's safe to say Paul's more offended by the teachings of Christianity than, than you and I are because he was, liter- he was so offended he was murdering Christians. I don't think anybody listening to this message is that offended by Christianity. The point is, Paul didn't become a Christian because he suddenly loved everything that it taught. He became a Christian because he looked at the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's where you need to begin. So I don't know if anyone's ever told you this before, but I actually think this is a really helpful thing to consider, whether you're considering Christianity or you already believe it, uh, just hold on to this, because this actually helped build my faith. The primary question the Bible leaves us asking, you can boil it all down to one single issue, the primary question that the Bible demands you and I personally come up with an answer for is, did a man named Jesus Christ successfully predict his own resurrection? That's it. If he did, well, if he didn't, nothing else in the Bible deserves further consideration. By Paul's own admission in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, if we're wrong about this one thing, we of all people are most to be pitied Throw the whole thing out. But if Jesus did, if a man named Jesus did pull off his own resurrection, then everything in this book deserves consideration. Everything in this book actually deserves dedication because Jesus believed everything here. So first and foremost... Number one, the resurrection should be understood as a fact. But secondly, and lastly, but don't get your hopes up because I am going to walk through this idea a little bit. Sorry. Number two, the resurrection should be understood as fulfillment. Verses 32 and 33 says, And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. What Paul's saying here is that the resurrection, it's not enough to believe in it just as a fact. You know, it's not enough to just stand back and say, ah, it's amazing. I guess something miraculous did happen in first century Judaism, and that's uh, neato that a guy came back to life. What he's saying is the significance of the resurrection is that... um, what it is, is it's, is, is it's God fulfilling a promise that he made to his people in the Old Testament. You're probably wondering, well, what promise is the resurrection specifically the fulfillment of? And, and the truth is, uh, the Old Testament's littered with promises. But one thing that they all have in common, every one of the promises has in common, specifically if you get to the, to the major prophets, is that the, pro- the, the promises were all aimed at the future. The promise that the Hebrew Scriptures leave you and I with, although no character in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament had any idea how God was going to pull this off, the promise that the Old Testament leaves you with is that the future of, of, of people, of us, will not be one of darkness and chaos. It's not going to be like God wound up the universe and He's just kind of letting things play out and you know, either we're going to drive ourselves to extinction or burn up in the death of the sun. The promise of the Old Testament is that the future of people is going to be a future of light and beauty and glory and peace 
and harmony, and actually that God is going to somehow find a way to take us back to where we were at the beginning before sin began its horrible, corrupting, destroying work in the world. Somehow, the lion and the lamb are going to lay down again. Somehow, there's going to be peace where there's been war. Somehow, there's going to be purity where there's been stains. Somehow, there's going to be joy when there's going to be, where there was sadness. He's going to do it. Now, again, I'm offering you a lot of thought experiments. I guess technically this whole series is one, but, but follow me on this. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing to consider that the, the Roman Empire, I, I think, is kind of the, the undisputed heavyweight champion of human empires so far. Um, that empire lasted over a thousand years. I mean, you consider that as a nation, we are very young compared to the Roman Empire. There was a longevity there, a stability there, a strength and an expansion there that um, kind of unprecedented throughout human history. It's an incredibly, it's a, at least an interesting thing, anthropologically speaking, big word there, triple word score, that in just the span of two or three centuries, this belief system that is difficult to believe called Christianity transformed that entire empire in just a span of two or three centuries. It went from murdering, Rome went from murdering the founder of Christianity to in the year about 380, declaring Christianity the religion of the empire. Now, that's in a climate when you didn't gain anything for raising your hand and saying, I'd like to be a Christian. You know, there, there wasn't, you know, nobody's doing altar calls in Nero's Colosseum. The, the way that it worked back then is when you said, I follow Jesus, your property's confiscated, your family disowns you, and as time started to wear on, they started finding horrific ways of publicly executing Christians. The, the question is, how does this belief system that's, that's based around a, a dead Jewish carpenter coming back to life, how does that transform that empire? And the answer, according to a lot of historians, is the doctrine of the resurrection. Because no one had ever heard anything like it before. It, it, it wasn't what the Jews were expecting. I talked about that a few minutes ago. It was unlike anything Greeks and Romans believed. They weren't really big on the physical body, so they, they had no use for a physical resurrection. And, and you, you, you wouldn't find anything quite like it in Eastern mysticism. Uh, so it, it was altogether unique. Um, but but the, the, the primary reason that Christianity had such transformative power and such, not only in the lives of individuals, but in, in the entire Roman Empire, the reason it had so much power and so much influence and so much appeal is because Christianity generally, but specifically the doctrine of the resurrection, came along and it fulfilled the human heart's longing for a future better than any idea that anyone's ever come up with before. And what I'd like to do in the time that we have left is I want to try to get us to see and understand the resurrection the way that, that those first century followers of Jesus would have, would have seen and understood it. Because when the resurrection began to be taught and understood, people realized at least four things about it. <clears throat> they realized first and foremost that the resurrection proves there is a future beyond this life. Secondly, that that future is, is personal. <clears throat> Thirdly, that you can know with certainty that you will take part in that future. And then fourthly and lastly, that that future will, will really exceed your, your wildest hopes and dreams. So let me walk through the, those four ideas. First off, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that there is a future. Here, here, here's a question. How do you know if a place exists or what that place is like if you have never been there? There's really only one way to know. 
if, if specifically in Paul's day. You would need somebody who's been to that place to come back and tell you what it was like. And I say that because for people in Paul's day, that's what the resurrection did regarding the afterlife itself. Um, in Paul's day, there's a Greek philosopher named Epicurus who taught something that is still um, highly influential even today, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and that is the belief that once you die, that's the end of your existence. You, you, you cease to exist in any form uh, the moment your final breath escapes. And so, therefore, you should not be afraid. And other groups of people believe that in Paul's day. The Sadducees were probably one of the most notable ones. That was a sect of Judaism. Same thing. Once you die, game over. And so, really, you should just, you know, try to live the best life that you can. Whatever your definition of a good life is, try to do that because you don't even know when the end's going to be and there's nothing after this. Now, certainly, a lot of people in Paul's day um, did believe in, a, um, in an afterlife. But my point is that no one had any confidence in what it was like. Nobody knew whether the afterlife was a good thing or a bad thing or how you had to live in order to get to the good version or who you could trust to be the authority to tell you about any, any of this stuff. And so into that setting, uh, Christians came along and they started talking about this thing called the resurrection, that a man actually went where all of us are going to go, which is into the grave, and yet this one man did something that no man had ever done before, which is come back out of it. And he promised that for all who put their trust in him, the same thing would happen for them as well. And in the resurrection, like I pointed out before, it wasn't like there was one magnetic, dynamic leader that said, God revealed this to me in a dream and you just got to take my word for it. It wasn't even like there was just a handful of people that stuck to their guns and said, you know, we, we all saw this thing. This is something that hundreds and thousands of men and women were all claiming they saw with their own two eyes most of whom were, were being persecuted for believing. And so what the resurrection did was for the first time in history, it gave people something that they never had before, was, which was the surefire confidence that, yes, there actually is a future beyond this life. That's the first thing the resurrection did for people. But building off of that, the resurrection further meant that, that the future was a deeply personal future. <clears throat> so like I just mentioned, Epicurus taught that when you die, uh, there's nothing to be afraid of because you don't exist anymore. Now, other Greek philosophers like the Stoics, um, who were also very influential in, in Paul's day, and whose ideas are even influential in our day, believe more like Eastern people, like Hindus and Buddhists. They believe that when you die, you don't necessarily stop existing. Um, you just sort of become one with the soul of the world. So to kind of explain what I mean, I don't know if you have seen the Pixar movie Soul, but at the beginning of the movie... The one of the characters dies, and his soul uh, goes to this sort of like holding cell waiting room, and there's all these other souls of people, and they all sort of look like fuzzy, light blue um, amoebas that sort of all look the same. And anyway, there's this one scene where they're all on this conveyor belt, and they're heading, you know, kind of up and to the right, and, and all of them are headed toward this gigantic white ball of light. And what becomes clear is that that's this, this movie's version of what the afterlife is going to be like. It's that all these souls are going to collectively become a part of this big, bright light in this impersonal way. And so they'll continue like that. Um, th there's a good number of religions uh, and a good number of people alive even today whose view of the afterlife is, is, is shaped by that idea that you don't necessarily stop existing, you just continue on to be a part of the universe in an impersonal way like a drop of water in the ocean. If I can pick that apart for a minute here, here's the problem with that. When Epicurus says 
you don't have to be afraid of death because there's no existence. Or when someone else says, uh, you don't have to be afraid of death because you continue on in an impersonal existence, here's what those two, two visions of the future have in common. There's no love there. Either a, a non-existent future or a non-personal future, what both of those visions of the future have in common is that there's no per- possibility of love. Because to give and receive love, you have to be a person. You have to be an individual. And one thing that is crystal clear about people is that because God is a deeply relational God at the core of His being and has made us in His image, what that means is that we are deeply relational beings at the core of our being. And that, what that means is that, that love is the primary thing that makes life meaningful for people. That's why it is so painful when someone is raised in a childhood home that's devoid of love. That's why that's not just something you shake off the day that you move out. That can wound you for decades, your whole life, in fact. That's also why the reverse of that's also true. The moment that you get into a community with people who actually love you, that's such a, that's such a cathartic thing. That's such a healing thing. It's because by our design as relational beings, the primary thing that gives our lives meaning is love. And so understanding that, just follow me here. When someone says, yeah, when I die, you know, that's the end of my existence, but, you know, I don't really care, what they're saying is, When I die, the one thing that makes my life meaningful is going to be stripped away from me forever, but I don't care. And and to anyone that would hold to that idea, I hope this doesn't come across as disrespectful or condescending, I just would say, I don't think you've thought that through. If I can just get, you know, blunt here, it is a horrifying thing to consider that you don't even know how many breaths you have left, and the moment that final one escapes, there is utter meaninglessness. And if, as secularism teaches, we all come from meaninglessness, we're just some big accident, and we're heading toward meaninglessness out of the maybe 95 years of life we get, then what that means, if we can just be real honest with ourselves, is that our lives are meaningless. The decisions that we make, the relationships that we form, everything that we aspire to do and might actually accomplish in our lifetime, in the grand scheme, it's entirely meaningless. And when you, when you just consider the implications of a worldview like that, you realize that affords you absolutely no resources whatsoever in the face of suffering. Secularism says there is no good reason for you to suffer. All it is is, is wasted time. How's that for hopeful? That's a worldview that offers you no good reason to sacrifice your wants, your needs, your happiness, your fulfillment, your satisfaction for the good of anyone else. It just, it, it's, it's an utterly, it's, it's deprived of all meaning. And the reason I say that is not to bum everybody out. I say that because when you hold that up to the doctrine of the resurrection, you see why people found this so beautiful. Because the doctrine of the resurrection teaches that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he was not raised in a kind of ethereal, you know, spirit sense. When Jesus was raised, he had a physical body, and he still recognized his friends. And he actually ate a meal the gospel writers were inspired to record. He actually ate a meal with his friends. And the doctrine of the resurrection teaches that when we believe in Jesus, if we're willing to surrender our lives to Jesus, we will be raised as he was raised. That means that the doctrine of the resurrection, here's what it means. And you understand why this was so amazing for people. It meant that on the other side of this life, you'll still be you. And you'll be with people who are still them. And so the resurrection offered people something that that the human heart has always longed for, but no belief system has ever been truly able to satisfy, which is a future in which there would be love without parting. You see why people were so enamored with that. 
so amazed by that. It was, it was such a transforming thing to, for them to consider. And so first off, it proved that there was a future beyond this life. Secondly, that that future was personal. But thirdly, the resurrection also taught that, the, that, that, that you could know with some certainty that you'll be a part of that future. If I, I mean, if I can point out something here, it, it really does know, it, it, do, it doesn't do anybody any good to say there's this amazing future available for people if you can't know with certainty that you're going to take part in it. But when you look at, at um, the point of Paul's sermon here, what's clear is that he's saying that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this isn't just a faint hope you, you, you wish that you know, you'll be on God's nice list, that you can know with certainty that you'll be a part of this future. In verses 27 and 28, it says, For the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they did not recognize Jesus or the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death penalty, they asked Pilate to have Jesus killed. Now, Paul is not just trying to make the people in Jerusalem look bad. He's driving home the idea that although Jesus died, he did not die for his own sins. And he continues this thought in verses 38 and 39, where he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. What Paul is saying is that the resurrection was the proof that Jesus did not die for his own sins because God vindicated him. He would have stayed dead if it was for his own sins. So the question is, if Jesus didn't die for his own sins, whose sins did he die for? And obviously we know the answer is yours and mine. But, but here's how Paul viewed the resurrection. And I don't think we, we, we talk about this or think about this enough. What Paul is saying here is that the resurrection is the tangible proof that the payment had been received. It's almost like the receipt that you and I can hold on to throughout our lives that lets us know that every single one of our sins is paid for. <clears throat> so when I was 19 years old, I've told you before, I worked at Hollister in the Marley Station Mall. I had this manager named Matt, and we had what I consider to be the deepest conversations that ever took place in, in Hollister, uh, between Hollister employees at least. And we, um, I remember one time we were eating at China Bowl in the Marley Station Mall. Fantastic restaurant. Go get yourself some China Bowl. Um, I just really like China. I was telling the 9 a.m. service. I don't know what it is. It's just a fantastic place to eat. Anyway, me and Matt were sitting there, and, and we were talking about the deep things of life. And he, he said, Ryan, you've never even asked me if, if I believe in God. And uh, I said, okay, do you believe in God? And he told me, you know, he was a, a biology major, and he said he believed that there had to be some kind of God because for him it was the issue of the origin of the universe. He said it just it doesn't make sense without God that there's life. That was, you know, his, his understanding. And so we kind of put a pin in the conversation. We picked it back up inside the actual Hollister. And this was really the last deep conversation we had before our lives took us in two different directions. And I remember him telling me, <clears throat> and obviously it stuck with me because I still remember it to this day. He said, if there is a God and I stand before him at the end of my life, this is exactly what he said. He said, I hope he's on my side. I hope he's on my side. You can, you can hear the insecurity in that. And I really respected his, 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 you know, his words there because I, I just think he's, he's more honest than a lot of people are willing to be. This is my belief, but I don't think there's a single person alive that does not at least occasionally feel insecure about that. Because if we can get honest, we've all done things that we're not proud of, things that, that we have trouble forgetting, 
And so we struggle to feel good about ourselves. Even Martin Luther, you know, the, the, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, you know, the one that was preaching grace alone, he had a terrible deathbed experience, even up to the finish line, wondering, am I going to make it? You know, what's God really going to say about me? I think that that insecurity um, plagues a lot of us. And, uh, and, and that's really, that's who Paul was before he met Jesus. This, you know, might surprise you to hear. But when, when Paul lived prior to that Damascus Road experience with Jesus, he lived life as, uh, yeah, he was religiously devout and he was trying to keep all the rules. But Paul wasn't doing that because he had this rock-solid assurance that God loved and accepted him. He did that because he was terrified. He did that for the same reason that all religious people live religious lives. It's out of fear. It's this desperate fear that maybe if I just do a little bit more, I can earn God's love. But here's what's so incredible to me. I was thinking about this as I put this teaching together. Paul's the same guy who in another letter known as Romans actually wrote the words that if God is for us, who can be against us? You hear the confidence in a statement like that, that God is for us. So who can be against us? And I just think it's helpful to remember the one that the Holy Spirit inspired to write those words is the same guy that killed God's people in his former life. And so the question that begs is, how does a guy with that much red in his ledger have that kind of confidence about what God's going to say to him at the end of his life? And the answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, I think, I think really you, you look at this dynamic faith that Paul had and this supernatural buoyancy that he had. He's got more joy in a jail cell than we have in a nine-to-five kind of thing. I think the primary reason for that is because Paul just preached the resurrection to himself more than we do, and he understood it more deeply. He internalized it more deeply than we do. And, and Paul understood, and this is what this sermon is about, is the resurrection is God's way of saying, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder whether or not you've lived a good enough life for God. You don't have to wonder whether or not your good deeds are going to outweigh the bad on your final day. And you don't have to wonder right here and now that God is for you. Because the hallmark of Christianity that sets it apart from every other major belief system, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of that stuff, is that nothing, nothing about your standing with God has anything to do with the life that you've lived and everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. I know that we know that, but can I just say that again? You're standing before God. You're standing before God. Your relationship with God, God's love for you, has absolutely nothing to do with anything you've ever done or ever will do and everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done for you. That he lived a sinless life you and I could never live. He died to pay for our sins. And, and the resurrection, what Paul is saying here, is the proof that the payment was received. There's a confidence that comes from that that you're not going to find anywhere else. It's a confidence that allows you to say, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, that, that because Jesus lives, you will not die any more than he stayed dead. If you want to think about it this way, I'll move on from this after this because I think I made the point. If the payment for a crime is 10 years in prison, then when you walk out of prison after 10 years, that crime no longer has any bearing on you. It no longer has any claim on you. And what the gospel is showing you and I is that if the, if, the, if, the, if the payment for sin is death, then when Jesus Christ walked out of death, what that means is that if you just put your trust in him, death has no claim on you. That's what that means. So the resurrection proves, first off, that there is a future after this life, that that future is personal, that you can know with certainty that you'll be a part of that future. But lastly, the resurrection also means that the future will exceed all of our hopes and dreams. <clears throat> so I've, I've shared this with you before. Um, I would not consider my dad a poetry buff per se, 
But throughout my childhood, there was one and only one poem that I remember multiple times my dad would uh, recite parts of to me. The poem is, maybe you're familiar with it, uh, it's called the, the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. And um, I reread that poem this week. It's fairly long, and it is uh, actually deeply disturbing. If you read the poem, it's, um, it's about a man who's lost his love, a woman named Lenore, and he's, I guess you could say he's having sort of an existential crisis, and his, his life has kind of come to ruins, and he's wondering if he's ever going to get past this, if his life's ever going to have joy or happiness or meaning ever again, and this, this raven swoops in. And it perches on the bust above his door, and it's pretty obvious that the raven is some sort of supernatural, probably demonic figure, because first off, it can talk, but it also seems to have this really unsettling insight into the author's life. And um, the reason I think that, that, that the, the raven is pretty unquestionably Edgar Allan Poe's most famous work uh, is because it touches on something that that we're all aware of, even if we work really hard to try to distract ourselves from or, or, or deny, that poem is meant to get across the irreversibility of human existence. That's why it's resonated with so many people for, I think it's been around for over 150 years now. Um, it, that poem is about the fact that we're, we're born, uh, you know, and time's only moving one way, and we experience so much loss in this life, and things so rarely go the way that we want them to, and we can't ever get it back. Because over and over again, the author is asking this raven, are, are things ever going to get better? You know, is there any balm in Gilead? Am I ever going to feel peace again or joy again or love again? And time after time, the raven just, uh, just offers this one word, haunting answer. You know the word if you've read the poem, it's nevermore. No matter what question he asks, it's nevermore. Let me shift here, and I'm going to get back to that idea. Odd segue. But I have a, um, a son named Hayes who's, who's going to be three in, in just about two months. And being a dad of four, uh, what's neat is, is I've discovered that I have a thing with each of my kids that's just our thing. And mine and Hayes' thing so far is bike rides. Uh, and this started um, actually just about the time that, that COVID hit. I would uh, put them on this little front-facing seat that sat on the hand, handlebars of, of uh, my bike, and I would throw in some AirPods, and we would go for rides around the neighborhood, and I would, um, I would usually listen to, um, to sermons or whatever. And so I remember, it was about 18 months ago, I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon on one of me and Hayes' bike rides. And the, the, the message hit me so hard, I started tearing up at the end. And um, this is a really heavy thing to say. Um, but by the end of that message, I felt like I was more prepared for my own death than I ever had been. Uh, it was actually Tim Keller preaching on this passage and specifically about the resurrection. And so let me just kind of set it up for you because I actually went back and I listened to it again and I, and I typed up the specific part that hit me so hard. But let me set it up for you. He was explaining that when you're young, the cross means everything to you because you've made all these mistakes and, you know, you haven't been the person that you really wanted to be and maybe you've hurt people and you wonder, how could God forgive somebody like me for all the dumb things that I've done? And the cross is the answer. Go to the cross, go to the cross, go to the cross. He said, and he was speaking as an older man at the time, and, and now he's been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, so it almost makes it more meaningful. He said that as you age, however, the resurrection becomes more and more meaningful to you because your future gets closer and closer to you. And here's exactly what he said. <clears throat> maybe this will mean... Something to somebody like it did to me when I first heard it. 
He said, when your youth is gone, it feels irreversible. Nevermore. When your health is gone, it feels irreversible. Nevermore. When people die, it feels irreversible. Nevermore. Everything's going. You never get it back. It's irreversible. But the resurrection says no to nevermore. So even a religion that promises heaven, that promises that somehow your soul will continue in bliss, even that only gives you a consolation for what you've lost. But the resurrection is the restoration of what you've lost. In the resurrection, you get it back. You get your body back. And you don't just get your body back. You get the body you always wished you had that you never had. You get your life back. The life you always wanted and never had. You get this world back, renewed and perfect. It's the reversal of irreversibility. It says no to nevermore. No other religion promises anything like this. And it's one of the reasons the world looked at this and said, I want to believe that. So we're going to close today. I'll call the worship team up. And I just want to end by speaking to specifically to two groups of people. I'm guessing that most of the people that, that listen to this message today or online after this already believe most, if not all, that I've talked about today. You already believe in, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications, but it's not real enough to you. It's not a lived reality. And that's where I think Christians live most of our lives, where we know these things with our heads, but we just, despite our efforts, we, we, we don't take the time to drive it into our heart until it really changes how we live. And if that's where you're coming from, if that hits home with you, I, I would just ask you to consider when you read the book of Acts in its entirety, there's a number of sermons between Peter and Paul and others, Stephen. One of the only things biblical scholars have pointed out, one of the only things that every single public sermon in the book of Acts has in common is every single one of them centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's one of the only things every single one of them has in common, and that's because those first followers of Jesus knew something that I think we forget too quickly. It's that the doctrine of the resurrection is a life-changing thought, that when the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of its implications comes real to us, it creates a courage, it creates a joy, it creates a peace unlike anything in this world. And so we need to preach that truth to ourselves early and often so that we're reminded that the resurrection is the reversal of the irreversibility that we all feel and are so easily discouraged by. And then on the other side of our final breath is not just a consolation for the life that we've lost, but the, the restoration of the life we've always wanted but never had. But secondly and lastly, if there's people listening to this, and I really hope there are, that are skeptical to Christianity, maybe you're new to church, maybe you're back to church after a while, you, you know, you got your foot in the water, you're just not quite sure what you think about this. If you're not ready to believe this, to go all in on this after today, I completely understand. I completely understand that. But I want to tell you, if you don't find yourself at least wanting this to be true, even if you can't believe it yet, if you don't find yourself at least wanting it to be true, that, that a man really did come back to life for you. And it proves that there is a future after this life and that this future is personal. It's a future where you can have love without parting and that you can know with certainty that you're going to be a part of it because it doesn't depend on the life that you live, but the life that he lived and that this future is going to wildly blow away 
your best hopes and dreams of what your life could be like, if you don't at least want that to be true, I, I just want to say something, and I hope this isn't off-putting, but that tells me you haven't understood what we've talked about today. You still don't grasp what Christians are talking about when we talk about this thing called the gospel. You still don't understand all that's offered to you by God the Father through Jesus Christ. And if that's you, uh, please, please just keep coming back. Just keep leaning in, keep listening, keep investigating, stay curious. Because when the truth of this comes home, when the light goes on, when it clicks, when it finally makes sense, when it becomes real to you, it will transform your entire life. It's been doing that for countless men and women for the last 2,000 years. I promise you it will do the same for you. And it all comes from understanding the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a cold, hard, historical fact and the fulfillment of a promise that God has made that he intends to keep by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Happy New Year. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, I, I wish I believed this even more. I need this truth to go more deeply into my heart so that I live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's my hope for me. It's my hope for everybody on the other side of this message, either in person or online. God, would you allow us to be a community of people that truly understand and truly internalize and live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for your glory and for our joy. Amen.